Okay. <clears throat> so I have a list of a few questions from the year that I received an email and different uh, mediums. And so I thought it would be interesting to go through some of these and answer them or respond to them, I guess. So let me go to my notes here. Some of them are interesting. <laughs> All right, I'll just go down this list that I have. So I'm gonna get right into it. Um, what do you think are the most common attributes associated with RAD? So in my experience, um, it is the counterintuitive nature in which everything plays out in your life. When they're younger, when RAD children are younger, you will notice things like um, a preference to go to strangers. Like they will um, not have a, oftentimes there's different, there are different um, types of attachment disorders and the naming, uh, the nomenclature has changed over the years. Um, so there's, you know, just inhibited, inhibited, um, you know, there's, they, t they talk about insecure attachment things. There's like more technical verbiage um, associated with, you know, the, the, the spectrum of attachment disorders, but we're just going to try to keep it simple. That's what I find works best. So um, when they're young, you will see things like when a child who does not have rad uh, experiences a loud uh, stranger or something like that, just a stranger in general, there is a little bit of trepidation. Rad children typically do not have trepidation when it comes to strangers, and sometimes they will show preference over their caregiver to strangers. That was my experience. Um, they want to be wherever they're away from you. Like the triangulation starts early on, in my experience. Um, also, you will see things that are very strange with hygiene. Um, I can almost across the board say that hygiene is a huge problem. It is not something they are connected to, feeling clean, being clean, um, being in a cleanly environment, being uh, smelling clean, having clean clothes. None of those things are a big uh none of those typical things that a person has a connection to even though kids are like um shower adverse <laughs> this is a different level of hygiene um it's it's a chaotic and disturbing level of anti-hygiene behavior so they will never wash their hands you will have to make them wash their face their hair they will go days and days and days without showers if they're not asked to they don't um, wipe themselves after going to the restroom. There's there's anything that you can think of that would be un unsanitary, unhealthy, um, smelly, <laughs> um, or even just willfully filthy. They will, I know a lot of young girls, um, when they start their menstruation, that is always a problematic time because it's very hard to get them to understand or participate in good um menstruation habits if you will um they don't have a preference for their clothes to be clean their bodies to be clean their hair to be clean their teeth to be brushed they will do things like urinate in their room urinate in i mean not like just on their bed like you know wet the bed i'm talking like stand up and go to the bathroom in their closet in their hallway wherever there's a lot of times you'll see food behaviors that are strange, like food hoarding, um, like over, like an overindulgence in snacks, it, they may wake up or they may stay awake 
while everybody else is going to sleep and they may go and do some obscene amount of, of food intake or food hoarding behavior while, you know, everybody's asleep. Like, um, my, my kid, I want to say it was like a hundred, like 132, like a Sam's box of airheads or something. She ate one, all of the box in one night or something like that at her aunt's house. She took an entire bottle and ate the whole bottle of um, prenatal gummies. When she was like two, I had a very strict no sugar rule. And she, I remember we were getting her into her car seat and um, she saw a cough drop on the carpet, under the carpet, under the mat on the carpet, stuck to the carpet. And she literally like fought me. I didn't know what was going on at first. She fought me. She like scrapes it up into her hand and like pops it in her mouth. And like will not, she like locked jawed on it. It like she thought it was candy, or to her it was candy. She at one point wanted to move out of our house desperately to live with her aunt, to uh, be able to have candy. I mean, it was, and she still to this very day will not eat regular food if she's not made to, um, or if she can't get food out of the house. And she will just in her room like a drug addict almost just eat sour candy and watch TV and like a rhythmic chips candy chips can like she has very specific chips like takis and sour candy and she will eat it like she has it on deck like it's a drug i mean it's crazy so um you will also see things with parents splitting um and triangulation that are pretty common in all almost all, all cases of rad so there will be a nurturing enemy it's typically the mother figure. Um, it can be the father figure or some, some other, you know, uh, uh, replacement parent, if you will. But it's usually the mom, um, the one that's there the most, the one that is the most involved, and the one that is doing the, the hard work. A lot of times dads will be well manipulated by especially daughters I've seen over the years. Um, a lot of cases are, a lot of uh, structures are like the dad's biological child and the stepmom is standing in or adopting or whatever for the biological mom who isn't there. And that becomes a real nightmare. Um, a lot of times the dad is, is positioned to think that the, the nurturing enemy is being way too hard, way too insensitive, selfish, um, you know, the, the child will manipulate the biological parent or just the, the father figure and the caregiving dynamic. Um, the child will also DCF and, of course, uh, therapists that are not attachment-informed and trauma-informed in this category, they can be easily manipulated as well. You'll see it with things, like they do things like um, they will be dressed and ready for school and decent um, appropriate clothes, but they will be, um, they will make themselves look like they are missing something that is, um, that, that is necessary for the day, their lunchbox. They'll leave their lunchbox behind the trash can at school. They will take off their shoes and throw them away, lose them. They will, uh, spill things on their clothes just for attention, just to have a conversation where they are neglected in, in that position. They will be, they will position themselves to seem as though they have been neglected. Um, 
they are oftentimes violent, like homicidally violent towards new children that are born into the family, especially of the two parents that are raising them. If one is not, you know, biological or if both are not biological, they will have a really hard time with the attention they see the new baby getting. Um, and that could come out in several different ways. A lot of times you will see a, um, a behavior that is sexual in nature with young girls uh, early on, and it'll be obsessive. Um, it'll be very um, directed towards, um, how do I say this? Very romanticized uh, visions of relationships and boyfriends and unhealthy decisions when it comes to getting the attention of boys or whatever. Um, with the young boys you do see that have attachment disorders, you will see, uh, again, a lot of the things with the um, hygiene, like uh, urinating places regularly, you'll see a lot of things that are akin to ADHD, aggression, um, and just, you know, defiance. So they get, a lot of times we have a misdiagnosis of ADHD and defiance disorder and they can actually have all of the things but a lot of times rat is something that is overlooked on purpose or uh, because it is not correctly identified in the community because they are avoiding identifying rad in that system that structure at DCF or foster care or whatever um, they are trying to avoid a you know placing a reactive attachment disorder diagnosis on these children. Let's see, then we have, um, what to expect when adopting rad kids? All of the things I just listed are things that you can expect. You can also expect that they will 100% 100% affect your relationship, your your marriage, whatever kind of relationship you're in, your career, your job. So your job will be affected because you will have to miss work. You will have plenty of long nights and arguments and debates and separate is, uh, behaviors that would cause separation, tactical, planned, calculated, um, divisive behaviors for your spouse and yourself to um, work through because of the kids. The biological family will oftentimes be pulled in when the child is old enough to communicate with them independently. You may have sexual abuse charges uh, pending at some point in your life because of false allegations from their child. You may um, end up arrested because of physical, sexual, mental, or some other abuse allegations from your child with false evidence, but um, seemingly valid at the time that you have to fight you may lose your other children that's a thing that we see a lot um a lot of times because of the chaos and the poor management of that chaos the other children are also removed from the home um you may have to have bed alarms you may have to strip the room that the child stays in down to nothing 
You may have a team of people that don't believe you that think you're lying. You may have a team of people that don't support you or know how to support you. You may be told in every supportive uh, facet that you do, you know, every space that you go to for support. This is so annoying, the yawning. Every space that you go to for support, uh, you will be told that you're being too harsh, that you are um, overdoing the discipline, that you're overreacting, that your um, feelings are not valid, that you are mean, horrible, your expectations are not aligned, that these children just need love. And you will most certainly um, experience that in your friend groups as well as with your family, like your own family, the child's other family. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a variety of things. I've seen friendships end abruptly. I've seen friendships dwindle, you know, just dissipate into nothing. I've seen absolute knockdown dragouts. I've seen sexual uh, conduct allegations that were, you know, you can't ever know for sure, but they seem untrue. I have seen animals have to be put down because they were injured. I've seen, um, I mean, my own child had a, an event and it wasn't a malicious, intentional um, uh, injury to the animal. It was actually the opposite. She she has a lot of compassion for animals. She thought she was helping this animal, but because she has that, that typical um, lack of a it's like it's like a narcissistic trait almost they think they know everything in a different way than other children do like they don't ask no, there's no curious um drive or curiosity to learn the correct things whatever appears in their mind at the moment is the right solution so um they cause themselves a lot of problems by not asking questions because they don't trust anyone to ask anyone. They don't trust anyone is more knowledgeable or more educated or more capable or more, um, you know, mature or whatever than they are. Um, you may find that your things are stolen regularly and that your privacy is consistently, um, uh, infringed upon by your child you may have to lock everything up everything needs to be put away or maybe not exist in your house you will find no gratitude for what seems like forever um, and when you do think that you're getting like a genuine response of gratitude love compassion empathy it is usually not the case the children don't typically seem to have the ability to feel remorse they don't have the ability to feel uh empathy or compassion and that makes it very difficult so i would say be prepared to put your marriage on the line your family and friends relation your you know your fa your familial and your your friendships will all be tested and some will most likely not make it through your reputation may change your career may change and you need to really that's like a lot of the content that i put out there is about expectations and managing yourself And that's why, because you really have to. Um, these children will never be interested in asking you questions about yourself or really anyone else. So you have to constantly remind them of birthdays, um, events, whatever, anything that doesn't revolve around them a lot of the time. And this includes things that are really important to you, like, uh, let's say, <clears throat> grieving is one of the things. 
you don't, you can't, uh, don't expect to have the space, the time, um, and the support to grieve if you lose a parent or another child. I mean, anything dramatic, like anything dramatic that is valid that would cause you to um, need extra support is going to be a vulnerability that they may exploit. Definitely will not show. I, I can't say definitely, but I can say that I have never seen a child with an attachment disorder show their caregiver any type of empathy, compassion, or um, just like kindness during uh, tragedies or during anything that is very emotionally difficult um, for the caregiver. Like if it's something very painful that is hurting, you know, hurting you, that you need love and support and like space to just experience this traumatic event, you cannot expect to have that from your child, especially, even if they're teenagers, um, in my experience, there's always a spectrum to all of these answers. So this is a very general response to these questions, but you, you know what I'm saying. Um, holidays are another big one that people struggle with a lot. Mother's Day, birthdays, um, anything that has a ritual to it, like if there is a something that you look forward to about the holidays or a holiday specifically that you look forward to or something that isn't about them specifically, um, you can pretty much count on it being a nightmare. I hate to say it, but but you, you can't expect them to remember it, to honor it, to behave for it, to show up for it in a way that is um, to your liking. You can't expect it to go well. And I know that sounds very pessimistic, but uh, you'd be best off to never expect it to go well, unfortunately. Um, yeah, uh, gift giving, receiving, buying, any kind of rituals that involve creating things like crafting or building baskets or something like that, not going to go well. Um, if they discover truths about certain rituals that you have in your religion or your family, uh, maybe some, you know, specific stories you tell the younger children that the older children, you know, eventually find out and support the younger children. Um, they will absolutely not do that. They will not be participating in uh, the keeping of secrets for the enjoyment of the child's, um, you know, for the magical qualities that come along with those rituals. They will not uh, honor that in most cases. I've never seen it. Anytime they find out something that can hurt someone that they, that leverage, they will most likely use it. That's just the facts. And these sound like really hateful things. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like picking on these children. I'm just telling you guys the answers to these questions because um, this is what you can expect. I mean, this is, this is what you can be prepared for. This is almost, I'm like racking my brain as I'm saying all these things just to, to, to remind myself, like, is, am I being, am I just thinking of myself, my own experiences? And that I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm actively pulling on memories of, the many other parents and the many other stories that have, um, you know, that, that I've, <laughs> I've dealt with over the years. So that's where these things come from. I'm not a medical professional. I'll say that again. But I am just telling you the, the standard, like the rad 
the gen- generic red, you know, manual would include these things. Um, it is maybe not exactly standard, right? Like these aren't standard for every person that has some version of an attachment disorder. Um, however, it, it, it's, it's, it is very close to a standard. If there was a standard, these things would be on it. So, um, yeah, I'm sure I'm missing things, but essentially that's, that's that. So if you have very important things in your life that you are preparing for, you would be best served to not inform them of their level of importance. Say you're getting ready for one of your other children's wedding and it's such a big day, it's so important. I would downplay it and keep them on the outside of that when possible. Um, That's going to save you a lot of heartache, I think, in most cases, you know. So how, uh, how do I live like this is the next question. How do I continue living like this? Um, you don't. You don't live like this. Whatever this is, is a, it implies that it's a miserable existence, that it's a negative experience, that you are at your wit's end, and you don't live like that. Um, easier said than done, I know, but there are ways to manage and mitigate this where you don't lose your mind. And I'm not saying I have like a, in my back pocket, this like tactical guideline. What I'm saying is that, um, if you start to reassess the relationships in your life, the way that your expectations are, um, if you're, if you're managing your expectations and your relationships from the scope of you knowing your truth and you knowing these relationships. So if you have friends that are just never on your, on your team, that no matter what you've shown them, told them, they just can't get over their innocence bias, as we call it. Um, <clears throat> if they just are starting to always, uh, if it feels like they're always not listening to you, they're not hearing you, they don't believe you, and it's causing a rift that is... Um, impacting your everyday existence then you have to manage that relationship and ask yourself like is this a friendship that can really stand the test of trials and tribulations in this life that i have and if it can't and if it's seeming like it's not and you have had a direct conversation with this this person these people then you need to manage that relationship moving forward if you cannot tolerate raising this child if you are finding yourself to, to feel mean-spirited towards them, to feel petty, if you find yourself doing petty things, if you find yourself um, wishing for petty things to occur, for them to learn lessons they're not otherwise learning, they're not listening to you, so you want them to suffer consequences all the time to, to a point that you know yourself. It isn't fair, rational, or reasonable to feel this way towards a child. Um, you have to manage that. You have to exit the situation. It's not always that easy, I know, but you have to start working towards a solution that is fair to you and to the child. It's not going to be an easy life. And if you signed up for it thinking that you were just going to build a beautiful family and it was going to be an easy life, you were sadly mistaken. And also, if you thought that you could just adopt a child from foster care and that would be like a beneficial thing for both parties and that you would be able to build a family or whatever, you know, I harp on this all the time. Like, you have made a mistake, and that mistake is on you. 
That is your fault. You did that. You, you against nature and against your, your, I would hope your better rational, logical self made a decision to enter into a situation that was never going to be easy and you should have never thought it would be. And if you did, that's on you. I mean, truthfully. So you need to get out of it. And, and that may seem traumatic for the child, but what is far more traumatic for the child is you not getting out of it and staying in it um, to the detriment of your own mental health, their mental health, and your ability to actually parent them has ceased to exist. That is far greater of a detriment to the child than you finding a a solution and um, exiting. If you're in a situation where it's your uh, boyfriend, your fiance, your husband's child, and you've tried to step in, that's not going well. It's not getting any better, no matter what you do. Then it is your duty to be the adult and exit the situation. And you can come back later and apologize to this person as an adult, if you so uh, decide. But in the meantime, it is your duty to exit the situation that you are no longer participating in in a healthy in a healthy way um if you are finding yourself struggling with therapeutic intervention for the child keep looking for more get on support you know find support groups find podcasts reach out ask people ask adults that are in the you know um mental health communities on reddit ask for people to give you recommendations do the research ask lots of questions for the child's therapist. And then of course, make sure you are seeking therapeutic intervention for yourself, for your marriage, for your other children. Um, if you find a, a, a teacher is not, uh, is stepping over boundaries because they feel like they, they've been manipulated by your child and they're making, they're buying them things. They're letting them go to the, you know, to the nurse's um, station all the time. They're, sending you these really petty, shitty emails home about the, you know, your, your parental duties and how you're failing. Um, even though, you know, it's not accurate. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't ask you any questions. They just kind of assumed whatever it may be. <clears throat> then you need to assert the authority that you have. And if you don't have any, you need to ask the person that does like your husband or whoever it may be. Right. If you're, uh, if there's no one around you directly that can intervene, then you have a bigger problem on your hands. But let's just say that's not the case. You ask the person that's in, 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 in charge of the child's education plan with the, the school and to, to do something about it, to come up with a new solution that works for everybody. If it is you that's in charge, then you assert your, your authority and you go to the correct chain of command. You ask for parenting, um, you know, parent meeting and you want a, a better communication plan. You want to work on a, um, basically you, you, you assert your boundaries. You, if you have paperwork through therapeutic interventions outside of the school that the school is supposed to be honoring, bring those with you, make sure they're following them. If you have any kind of ADA paperwork or anything like that, that the school is not following, then you bring that paperwork with you and you demand that they follow it or you're going to change teachers, you're going to change schools. It's always gonna be like that. You're always gonna be looking for those um, opportunities to improve upon or find a better person for you and your child's situation. That's it. Whether that's your friend, family, thera therapeutic interventions, uh, medical care, whatever it is, respite care, school, but whatever. So you're always gonna have to be 
um, apprised of the best options for you to improve upon these moments. You know what I'm saying? So, um, yeah. So let's see. Next question is, why do people think I'm lying? And this is a question that I have explored in several other ways over the years. People think you're lying because innocence bias. When there is a child, a baby child who had a terrible, terrible go of it, okay? They were abused, abandoned, neglected, whatever the case may be. They've been, their parents were on drugs, whatever. When we hear that about children, we feel sad. We feel terrible for them. We feel like they need to be saved. And then when the person who was supposed to save them is now basically shit-talking them about their behavior, it seems so insensitive and it seems so implausible that a child could do all of these very manipulated, calculated, tactical, horrific things to an adult who's saving them. So it instantly causes their ears to perk up and hear, they hear you in a, they hear you from the position of, of protecting innocent children. It's our nature to do that. And they're not seeing this behavior for themselves. And you can tell them all the things, but they're reframing it. As fast as you say it, they reframe it. Because there has to be a problem that is not the child's fault in this storyline. And so they're constantly looking to blame you because it's your story, it's your situation, it's your child, you're the adult. And they are going to automatically, uh, whether they think you're lying or not at first, it may get to that point or they may question it when they never would have on any other topics, right? But now all of a sudden they don't trust you um, because it seems so obscure. Especially, especially if there's any element of jealousy or uh, any drama or you have a history of being, you know, a complainer, you have a history of being harsh on your own kids, you're a brawler in the streets in your youth, they know that you're aggressive, they know that you are uh, jealous and that you are controlling of your man and his, these are just examples, and his baby's mother is always a problem for you and now you're taking it out, it seems like you maybe are taking it out on the kid. Like, gonna look for anything to validate the child instead of you. In 90, in almost 100% of cases, that's, that's, that's the, the immediate response. They're gonna think you're lying because when they interact and engage with your child especially, they don't experience that. When they talk to the grandparents, the grandparents say they don't experience that. When they're around just the dad, the dad has a totally different take on the kid. When the kid goes to their house to play with their kids and they are observing, looking for these signs of terror, they don't see them. They see a perfectly well-behaved child. So how can they not only go against their gut, but also their own real lived experience? That is oftentimes why the nurturing enemy is placed in this isolated, um, uh, scary, just lonely, isolated, reclusive kind of um, place. They're harbored away. Just, just now you're in a miserable um, life and you don't have any support and you've lost your friends, blah, blah, blah. They think you're lying. They, they tell each other stories that are more and more dramatic each time. And <clears throat> sometimes that never changes. Sometimes you'll see 
um, in my experience, you will see people who do not have the competency to understand rad or the desire to understand it or, or even the wherewithal to just do a little bit of reading or research. They don't care and they don't want to care. They don't care what you're saying and they don't care about the truth of the diagnosis. They don't, they don't have the capacity, the competency, the, the, um, interest or investment to even do the work to begin with. So, uh, they're not going to, they're not going to read anything that would validate you. They're not going to look for any information that would validate your experience. They're not going to do that because that, that is an act of service to you. And for whatever reason, they're not interested. So, um, the things that could help them to understand what you're going through or validate the stories that you tell, they're not going to put the time in. And even if they did put on a podcast or something, they're, they're not going to believe it. They will just straight up tell you it's not that it's this, like with my kid, it would be like, um, ah, yeah, I mean, whatever. But I mean, she's just like her mom. That's the problem. She's just like her mom. And I'm like, she doesn't know her mom. What do you mean? She's never even like, it's so frustrating because I'm like, no, as a matter of fact, that's not the case. So, um, why do they think you're lying? Because it's easier to believe that the adult who has lied in the past, who is capable of lying, who knows the repercussions of lying, knows how to lie, knows how to craft stories and the benefit of those manipulations. It's easier to believe that you would be lying than a baby child would be lying, especially when they don't see any of the behaviors or hear any of the things that you say all the time that you experience. They don't experience it for themselves. And they don't want to believe that they could experience for themselves, experience that kind of thing from the, for themselves either. It's an innocence bias. They're automatically going to want to believe the child. And that's that. I mean, it's pretty much that simple. Um, sometimes they do have the experience and see it themselves. And then sometimes they can see it themselves and they still, they still can't let it go. It just depends on the person, I guess. Does RAD improve with medication? This is a very hard question for me to answer because it is so controversial and it is such a medical, uh, um, uh, a medical expertise <laughs> that I, you know, qualification that I don't have. I am not a doctor. I do not prescribe meds. I, um, cannot recommend meds. I can't really answer this question with my full experience because I don't want it to come out as a recommendation, but I will say this <clears throat> rad reactive attachment disorder the disorder, the experiences that cause the symptoms of, of reactive attachment disorder is not necessarily improved by medication. It's not like a virus that will, you know, or cancer or something, um, or even like a depression that can be with, you know, um, well, that's not a good example. Let me, let me just back up before I say things I, I shouldn't say. What I can tell you is that many people have experienced medications that manage and mitigate symptoms that are so problematic that they cause a disruption in the child and the parent's life that is, um, needs to be immediately addressed. So there are drugs that will work to manage and mitigate the symptoms of a child, uh, the symptoms and the behaviors exhibited by a child that has reactive attachment disorder. Um, those drugs specifically should be discussed with your doctor. I will say that I personally did and have experienced insane results, like very, very impressive, good, unexpected, wonderful results with drugs. I'm not going to say the drugs. <laughs> Sorry. I know that's really frustrating. Um, 
I'm not going to say the drugs. So I hope that gives you hope to maybe look into a new prescriber and start visiting the ideas and maybe visit support groups and ask around. I just can't give, I'm not going to put myself in a position to make it seem like I'm giving recommendations on drugs. Sorry. <laughs> That's not a, not a good idea for me, but I, I will say that there can be major improvements and your life can um, actually be, um, you can you can experience a level of breakthrough with drugs in some cases that is a game changer. Yes. My rad child is growing up into an adult. So that question comes to me in a lot of forms. Like my kid's turning 18. My kid is um, in jail, even in juvenile jail, and they are allowing me to emancipate. They are allowing me to relinquish rights. My kid just turned 18 and moved out of the house or, um, my kid is with the bio parent now and doesn't want to come back. Uh, can't make them come back, whatever, whatever the, the reason for permanent, um, separation other than you initiating, um, relinquishment of your rights for whatever reason. So what people are asking is, how do I move forward when the child is separating from the family, from myself? Um, what do I do? Well, the first question to ask yourself would be, what do you want to do? What do you need to do? What does your therapist think is in your best um, interest to do? For me, um, in my situation, uh, I was very afraid that if, if, so, so my kid was living with her biological dad and his wife, and she was not happy there for all the obvious reasons. And um, I was very concerned that she would not graduate high school before she turned 18 if she stayed there, meaning she could move out while still in high school and be technically living on her own or making some terrible choice before she even had her diploma. So I was very concerned about that. Um, and I raised that concern amongst all of the participants in her life. And ultimately she came, she wanted to, and she did come here to finish her high school education, um, living with me. And now she's, she just decided to stay. Initially, we were just going to get her high school diploma, um, accelerated, take what they call the tape test. And that was our initial plan. However, um, she, and, and she was going to go back and she just decided that she was happier here. She felt like she had better opportunities with me. And of course I was willing and joyous to have her, um, here. So for me, it was the best part of our relationship came at that point when she came back, she was a far more evolved human. She was a much more competent um, communicator. She was far greater invested, like her investment in my advice, my guidance, my parenting, nothing like I had ever experienced with her. She, I mean, she had never allowed me to parent her or listen to me or felt, um, I never felt that there was any level of optimism or eagerness, um, or even really like appreciation, love, respect, any of those things, um, for many years. So it was the first time that, that I really felt like all of my years mattered. And I still feel that way today. I feel like we are closer than we ever were. 
I feel like I had to work very hard for that. Um, not in recent years, but over previous, uh, her previous years, you know, I, I, I did work very hard to be consistent. I was not always consistent and I made so many mistakes. It's not even funny, but, um, we are not, we are not, um, we have not been in any way disenfranchised and we have not been impacted negatively by her symptoms, which they do still come very regularly. Um, we are almost always in a place of like disassociating and regulating and disassociating and regulating and her um, just self-sabotaging and whatever. And she has faith in my guidance. Um, she does obey me. She's always been obedient. Even if she's going to do something crazy, it's usually like one big crazy event, not like consistently being bad, I guess you can say. Um, so she's always pretty much minded my, my required rules, even to this day. She, she, she goes pretty much above and beyond what is expected of her. So um, that turnaround came and... I couldn't be happier for it. I know that is not everybody's experience. So I have a hard time with this question because I don't want to speak out of the side of my mouth. I don't want to feel, I don't want people to feel like um, I'm speaking to something that I haven't experienced because that would essentially be what I was doing. I mean, basically, like I <clears throat> most certainly had um, lots of time where there were, we were not speaking, um, after she moved to her dad's, there was, there was quite a chunk of time where she seemingly was never going to talk to me again, that his wife would become her mom. It was very upsetting and hurtful to me, but that was, I just kept pushing back and I just kept, um, showing up because I didn't know this person. I didn't understand why she was so adverse to, my involvement in her life because I have always been in her life and I didn't understand exactly what her, her angle was. And I flew to Florida and I met with her and we talked about things and, you know, there was some triangulation and stuff, especially on the front side. And we like worked through everything, but, and we're fine now. But, um, I was very adamant about seeing this through whether I was, um, whether anybody wanted me to be there or not, but that was my position. I mean, I, I mean, I was invested in it to that level, and she is not um, the kind of person or kid that most people are running from. Like, she's difficult. She is very difficult. She could be very difficult when she was young, but she was not that high-level criminality kind of difficult. She wasn't doing the things that um, would put you in jail, like a lot of, a lot of rad kids do end up in jail and they are in jail when they turn 18. Um, she didn't really run away ever. Um, she, she just, she was very obedient. So you could always rein it back in whether she was, she would be compliant and obedient, even if she was miserable and, and the disdain was, um, oh, I mean, God, you, I mean, it would, it would be palpable, you know? So, so with that being said, um, my advice is this, if you are in a situation where you are looking to, or the opportunity to separate is, is up 
upcoming and you have some form of um, authority in that, like you can cause separation, you can initiate separation, you can um, eliminate communication and that is giving you peace and you are driven to do so. That is your, that is your gut is that you want to do that. You can take a break. You can even step back permanently. You, you know, when they're grown and if they are not um, participatory in their own, their own well-being, I mean, you can do that. And, and some people will tell you it's bad. It's unfair. It's so much more trauma for them. I'm not going to say that because I think it's more traumatizing to force a relationship between two people who are clearly not doing relationship things well. Like the the parental relationship or bond never was built. There was never any respect there. Um, it's just a situation of attention or manipulation or resources, like whatever. You can leave that relationship if it's appropriate to do so legally and it's something you're looking forward to. I would say if that is what your heart desires, then yes, do so. Honestly, because I don't want people that have no desire to be in these people's lives, these children that are now becoming transitioning into adults' lives, they, they, they should not be there if they can't, you know, if they can't do it, that's, that's fine. They should uh, be the adult and exit the situation, I think. I think that is my take, honestly, probably, hopefully. <laughs> and the most difficult of all is... Do I know that they can hear me, that they can hear all of these things on these podcasts that we say that I have addressed and that this is exactly their fear? And this is coming from adult rad children, uh, children that were, you know, adults that, that were diagnosed as children with rad or that feel like they still have rad, even though they're in adult age um, and they've essentially aged out of the diagnosis. But they ask me things like, um, don't you understand that everything you say and all of these horrible uh, feelings, negative feelings that you have about us, this is exactly what we knew they always felt. This was always what we were worried about. We knew that they didn't love us. We knew that they were burdened by us or, you know, whatever, uh, in, the, in the realm of, I'm paraphrasing, but this, this type of thing. And that's always hard because... Um, most of the time I've experienced, they don't understand RAD to begin with. They don't really understand what their diagnosis is and what it means and why they have it and who uh, they should be angry at or whatever. They're, they're just misplacing a lot of their emotions and they are raging um, a lot of the time in this moment. So they're like on the internet trying to find out information because there was some kind of a chaotic breakdown of a relationship or something. And, and that's why they came to me. There, that's how they ended up finding me. Um, I have been able to talk through this moment with some, some of these, um, folks. And I've been able to say like, Hey, I, I understand what you're saying and I understand how it feels, but, but the experience for a person, um, who is trying to do their best and whose life is becoming more and more unmanageable and there's not seemingly any reward for them and they are suffering all the time. It's very hard for that person to have clarity. And because there is so much clarity for children, there's so much support for children. Um, there's so much, you know, um, there is help out there for children in this situation. There is not a lot of 
of of help out there for these parents and they make grave mistakes because they're caregiving from a place of anger and hurt and a deficit, a void. And they are almost um, taking on the qualities of your trauma and, and reflecting that back to you. And it's not safe for you or for them. It's not good for anybody. If you can't be validated as an adult, you have to go to other adults and, and you need to be validated and you need to, you need to understand a better way to do things. And sometimes you reach people by validating them first, whether they were right or wrong, their feelings are valid. And not a lot of people tell caregivers of, uh, uh, of reactive attachment disorder children who are episodic and acting out all the time, um, that they're, it's okay to have the feelings they have, that they are, that they are, they are real experiences and they are valid and it's okay to be hurting and it's okay to be frustrated and it's okay to feel like you made a mistake. And like, that is hard to hear, but this programming wasn't designed for you. And if you show up here and listen to it, then that's okay. But it's not designed for you. It's designed for the, the niche, the niche of um, caregivers who are not doing well. That's, that's, that's who, I initially built this whole thing to address is those individuals, people that were not sure if they wanted to continue. They felt a lot of negative feelings. They felt like their whole lives were breaking down. They felt like they had tried everything. They felt anger. They felt resentment. They felt uh, that they made mistakes, um, that they, they didn't manage their own expectations, but the system has let them down. These are bigger adult uh, feelings and they're not, associated all the time exactly with how they will make you feel. They're more about a systematic, accountable, be, needing to be a systematic uh, breakdown of the structure in, in our human services life, right? As in America, the way that human services handle these problems within families, um, it's broken. The way that we handle um, informing those who are going to step in and, and, and care for these families in whatever capacity is also broken. These people are not qualified. They're not educated. They don't have the means, the resources, the mental capacity, the home uh, structure to deal with children that have needs like this. And they have been let down as adults. And this is not necessarily about how you feel. It's about um, the absence of how you feel, as a matter of fact. It's specifically not about you. It's about the caregiver. And like, I am not saying that there is not a space for you to feel all of your feelings too. It's just my job is to try to buffer for people who don't have any, anyone supporting them after they have, um, they, they are failing you and they need support and they have tried and they have failed and they have been failed. And so they are really at the, the bottom of their rope. And the only job you have, this is the type of thing I would say to the child and I have for years, the only job you have is to do what you need to do and get the support you need. And I can help you find those resources. I can talk to you about those things. But my first job, and this is for your benefit, is to always pay attention to the needs of the caregiver and the desperation of the caregiver so that that person can be maybe incentivize, re-energize, um, validated, and come back to the home structure with a little bit of insight and space to fix the problem. 
but we have to hold space for these people that have no one holding space for them. And that's just, that's just facts. I mean, that's just what we have to do. That's what I have to do. That's what I'm compelled to do. That's what I, my initiative has always been. So I try to explain that in whatever capacity I feel like they are able to comprehend it. And I just try to move forward. It is never easy to tell kids that are hurt that they're, you know, adult kids, kids, whatever, that they, you know, these are usually um, late teenagers, early 20s type, type of, uh, they seek out this type of engagement in those age ranges, I feel. It's never easy because they're angry, they're frustrated, they feel like this is the gotcha moment, you know, and um, I don't want them to leave the conversation feeling like we all are out here just uh serving it to them in private con in you know private forums i don't want them to feel like they don't also matter that their feelings and that their experiences by by the hand of this caregiver isn't equally as valid and important it is if not more so maybe however i can't provide both things to both people at the same time you know so I will try to direct them. I will try to close the conversation um, in a way that is um, full of resources for them or that I've directly reached out to someone and tried to connect them immediately or I've remained open to them. Um, my, my, I go to my own kid for advice. Like I will literally go to my kid and like be like, what do I do? What do I say? What do you think? Whatever. Um, I often don't get it right, I'm sure. Um, I've had... Some of these these guys I've talked to off and on for years. Like they messaged me on Facebook five years ago, four years ago, whatever. And um, I still talk to them periodically. And um, I don't feel qualified as, as much to talk to them because the spectrum of things that they need and experiences they've had and the way they tell those stories is so unique to each person. And I'm not, I, I just feel better talking to the caregivers because that is my unique position as well. Um, it is never easy for me to have these confrontations. Um, and I am always battling a feeling of shame and guilt. And if I've made the wrong choice or if I'm doing something wrong in those moments. And then of course, you know, when I reflect back on it, I'm like, no, you're doing the right thing because that is my duty. That is what I'm compelled to do is to provide a supportive space, holding space for caregivers who really need it. And that's it. That, that, that's where I, that's what I can do. I'm not saying that there isn't a need for the other things. It's just what I have to give. So yeah, so there's some questions. Whew, that was a lot. And it feels really shitty to say all the negative things again and again and again. But I know that my audience can understand that. They, they're looking for that information and they are aware of that context because it feels like you're just harping on the same thing sometimes. And it's like, I want to move forward into like bigger conversations and based on the communications, the, the things I read, the conversations I have with people, I always try to like be, be uh, inspired by those moments and they are very repetitive. The struggles and the meat of the struggle is always in this apex of, of issues. Like what, what else could go wrong? And like everyone experiences bits and pieces of all of these examples I've given. And it's really tough. Like I think our whole lives, all of us, every human is like put on earth to like 
figure out how to heal the trauma their parents caused them, period. Like whatever that looks like. And that's a, that's a shitty, shitty situation for some people. Like their parents fucked them up real bad and they are, they are really struggling and they are causing a lot of other people struggle struggles. And that is caregivers I'm referring to, you know, caregivers that are, they have kids with rad, but they have their own trauma and it is hella heavy. And, um, they were never qualified to help heal these children. And, you know, getting them to the place of understanding that is like very hard. It's all hard. All of this is hard, but I do want to like validation is so important, but I want to like move into other conversations too. So I think these are my most asked or most important questions. I'm sure there are many others that I'm, I, I probably could have added, but, um, hopefully this helps. It's not much, but it's what I got for today. And, uh, yeah, love you guys. I will uh, see you in a few days, hopefully. All right.